0: Well, if you want to find your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3. We uh, uh, actually go through books of the Bible here if you're new and we take, we're actually presently walking through the book of Ephesians and we're in Ephesians chapter 3 this morning and we're so glad that each of you are here this morning. I want you to know that uh, we're really good at recognizing maturity in people, Right? I mean, we can identify it and we really are good at identifying a lack of maturity, right? So, for instance, physical maturity. Uh, risk it started really young, you know, like, like when they're brand new babies, and are they growing, and how much do they weigh, and how tall they are, and, and we have these like little charts. And in fact, we kind of are into the weight thing, but then it ends at a certain point, and then we never talk about that ever again, right? Okay? Don't ask if I'm still growing. Don't want to, don't want to know. Don't even want to think about those things, right? But we recognize physical maturity. In fact, if something's not quite right, we, we can pick up on that, and we're going to see what can we do to maybe help with that. And then, of course, there is emotional maturity, your ability to respond well to the different uh, events that take place in your life, your ability to control your emotions, to understand what other people might be feeling, your EQ. And we, we actually see people who are handling stress well, who, who take responsibility for their actions. On the other hand, it's really noticeable when someone has not developed emotionally, right? It's one thing to watch a two-year-old throw a little tantrum, right? It's a whole other thing if it's a 42-year-old, right? Like, what's happened here? Why are you behaving this way? And there's a big gap. There's not the maturity you think that should be there. And then, of course, there is intellectual or mental maturity. The ability to understand how things work, problem solve, um, to integrate truth with life, to have a mind that not only can seek to find information and to understand, but actually apply these things to their lives. And, and we see this, and we, we recognize people with great amounts of maturity when it comes to their intellect. But one area that it seems that we're not really sure about even how to go about it is spiritual maturity. How does spiritual maturity become a reality? Now when we talk about spiritual maturity we we recognize when some people have it they they seem to have a very tight meaningful intimate covenant relationship with God a friendship there's there's holiness of Life. There is a desire to walk in his ways. There's, there's something about the wisdom that they share and how they handle themselves and go about their lives. And it's so demonstrated in how they love and how they serve. And, and it's just like their whole perspective is different. I mean, so many people are living for the here and now and on the horizontal. And, and people with spiritual maturity, they are living for eternity and recognize that this life is just but a dot on this great line of eternity. They have... The ability and seemingly with, it seems like if they've, they've been like this for years, to be able to integrate God's truth with their life in such a way that it is a joy to be around. They're pleasing. It's like the aroma of Christ and the Christ-likeness in their life. It's, it's so very evident. But how in the world do you develop spiritual maturity? I want you to know, like for me, like I have been on a quest to grow and experience the deepness of relationship with god i really value spiritual maturity because i want to experience everything that god would have for me as an individual and i'm pretty sure you're in that same boat you too want to know like how how do you really experience spiritual maturity what's the path how do you go about it friends that is why i'm so thankful that you are here today Do you know why because we're going to look at a prayer that's recorded in the beginning in Ephesians chapter three, verse 14, that Paul literally spells out how spiritual maturity can be a reality. And as you might expect, all three members of the Trinity are involved in bringing about spiritual maturity in the in a person's life. In fact, we've seen that multiple times as we go through the book of Ephesians, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of his people. So first thing you need to know about spiritual maturity is that it comes from seeking the Father. So take a look here, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. He says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. For this reason... It's for the reasons that he's been explaining all throughout the book of Ephesians, how we once were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were literally dominated by evil. We were in darkness. We were spiritually dead, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And yet God, in his amazing grace, rescued us from ourselves, redeemed us, bought us out of the slavery to sin, actually paid the penalty for our sin, which is death, and for by grace you have been saved. You've been rescued. That not of yourselves, it is what? The gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. And God who has actually saved us through Christ has also then shapes us. It's his life, his grace, that shapes how we live. Like you see in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, poema, masterpiece, which God prepared before him that we should walk In them. And so we see that God has prepared us so that we would experience life in Him. And the very first work that He describes is that we are one in the body of Christ. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile in your background, what matters is that Christ is your Savior and your Lord, and you experience forgiveness of sins. And He brings us into His body, which is called the church. And this new life, is all based on Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And it's laid upon the foundation of his word, and that's given to us by the holy apostles and the prophets. And our lives are like a living temple. In fact, you see that in verse 22 in chapter 2. We are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Christ is the cornerstone, the foundation of his word, We are alive in Christ. We're part of his family. We are kingdom citizens. And Paul writes, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. To bow your knees, interesting that Paul would write this because the typical prayer posture of the Jews was one of standing. You would stand, look up to heaven, and you'd raise your hands. A desire, an expression, an imposture—for to express God's greatness and for God to work. But Paul references going down on your knees. It speaks of urgency, a pleading, an absolute dependence. And it's interesting that he uses bowing one's knees. Now, it's, it's really reflective of the heart attitude. It's not your posture in prayer that makes the difference. It's your heart. When you pray, what is your heart attitude? Anybody can say some words and then say amen after it. But if your heart really is just kind of saying some things because you think you need to, but you're not coming from a heart of dependence or needing God's mercy or expressing praise to God, you're really missing the heart of prayer. You can pray in all sorts of different postures. I'll I'll tell you, for me, I've prayed pretty much any way you could pray, I think. I can pray with my eyes open, but usually I keep my eyes closed so I can stay focused on God. Uh, I pray oftentimes while I'm driving. And not just because the periodic like crazy driver that's out there, but actually just to spend time with God. Before uh, meetings, especially ones that are going to be challenging, and I've got to talk with somebody about some pretty significant issues, I always pray. If you're around our staff team, you've probably noticed that like we pray before the meeting and after the meeting. Why is that? Because we know that nothing's going to happen unless God does it. And that's desperate what we want. We want God's will to be done. I've prayed laying my hands on people. I've prayed with my hands folded. I've prayed standing, sitting. I oftentimes pray while I'm out running. Um, I've prayed sometimes where I'm just down on the ground with my face, just absolutely dependent upon God. He's got to work in this situation. At a variety of times, I, I pray on my knees. But the question is, what's really going on in my heart. Nothing magical about the posture. But there is something about getting on your knees that tells God and actually tells you, you are dependent upon him. You are coming to him as the Almighty. And when Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, this is really rich because do you remember, uh, it's recorded in Acts chapter 20 that Paul meets with the elders from Ephesus, this is the very same letter. He's writing a letter to the people in Ephesus, the Ephesians. And when he got done meeting with them, you can read all about this in Acts chapter 20. Do you know what he did? With all the elders that had come down from Ephesus to that port city of Miletus, before Paul gets onto the ship, you know what he does? He gets down on his knees and prays. And it's really an emotionally charged event. They're weeping. It is powerful, powerful. And he's praying, and that gives you a really good picture. What does spiritual leadership look like? Absolute God dependence. Down on my knees. And those men never forgot it. And he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And he says, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So all the prayers in the New Testament... Are to the Father, through the Son, empowered by the spirit. Uh, overwhelmingly so, the prayers are directed to the Father, and then he says this that the Father is the one who has given every family in heaven and on earth their name. In the ancient world, to name something was to have authority over it, ownership of it. And here's something rather fascinating. God is the father of all humanity. But specifically, he is the father of those who believe. But every family on earth, in heaven, derives their name from him. Why? Because he's the creator of every single person. You belong to Him, whether you live like it or not. And there are plenty of folks like, I don't care about God. I'm going to do my own program. I never think of Him. It's all about me. And they're not living under the authority of Christ. They could care less about His kingdom. They're not really interested in His word and what He has to say. But you need to know, you actually still belong to Him. You're rebellious, and you're living out your rebellion, but you belong to Him. You and I, every single person, guess what? We belong to Him. To him. And that's what's intended for us to understand here. He's reminding us every family in heaven on earth derives its name. And so he says, then, verse 16, that he would grant you, you who belong to him, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Paul's prayers are really interesting, they are for the spiritual welfare of others you're not going to find a lot of prayer about physical or material needs, which is interesting because so many of our prayers are about just that. Nothing wrong to pray about physical or material needs. It's just that the most deepest needs of life are the ones that reside within the human heart. They are the spiritual needs, the the needs of the soul. And that's what you'll find when you look at all the prayers, especially in the new Testament, they're all directed about the soul and God working in the inner person. And so He is praying, verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, the immensity of his character, the full expression of who he is, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. You see, if you really want spiritual maturity, you have to go to the source who can give it to you. That is why we are always seeking the Father. And we get that. Uh, when we have something that we need, we will go to the source that can supply it, right? So let's say you uh, have a very special wedding in your family, and like you need to get dressed up, right? And you get, you need like the right clothes. Most of us are going to go to a clothing store that's going to sell like nice clothes, right? If you're the bride, you don't just go to any store, right? You're not like, well, I wonder what they got here, at Dollar General and see what, I... no, you're going to go to what? A specific store. Now, I know there's a few guys there that, like, I, everything I need is at the hardware store. You know, camo goes with every occasion, right? I know there's some folks that think that way, and we'll smile, and we're glad you're there. And, like, you got your little Ace Hardware hat on. You look so good, you know? But for most folks, like, man, if I'm going to get dressed up, I'm going to need to go to a clothing store where that actually has those kind of clothes because that's how it works. And it's, we see it in academics, athletics, music your career, you want to get better, you want to achieve, you want to grow, well, you're going to go to the source. If you're really here and you really want spiritual maturity, I mean, you're like, you're done with the whole complacent Christian bit. You're like, I really want to experience the fullness of God. Then seek the Father. Maybe even just get down on your knees and ask Him. This is what Paul is praying for others. You ask God for yourself, And for others. Spiritual maturity comes from seeking the Father. And let me show you something else. You see this in verse 16. Spiritual maturity comes by the strengthening by the Spirit. Did you see that in verse 16? So we see the Father, here we see the Holy Spirit. Verse 16 says that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, to know God's strength. In your soul, the inner person, your heart, your mind, your will, that's all entailed in the inner man. God wants his people to experience his power, that we are strengthened in the power that comes from his Holy Spirit. And you're like, well, what in the world does that even look like? Do you like glow or what's the deal? What's, what's his power? How do you get strengthened in it? Well, think of it. So, for instance, when do you actually even receive the Holy Spirit? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, at the moment you believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit isn't something like, well, I hope I get it like later on. The Holy Spirit comes into your life the moment you believe, and he is actively at work to bring holiness to your life. The word holy means to set apart so that you are growing into the likeness of your Savior. And so he starts guiding and directing. You will always find genuine Christians have a heart desire to know truth, to know his word. Why? Because the Spirit of God takes the word of God, which the Holy Spirit was directly involved in giving, to accomplish the work of God in the lives of his people. That is spiritual growth. And so the Holy Spirit reminds us of truth. He convicts us. He leads us. He guides us. He brings comfort. If you lack wisdom, the Spirit of God will give you wisdom. And oftentimes you're going to find it's directly related to truth that you're reading in the word that he's given. It's the Spirit of God that gives you strength to serve, joy, the ability to extend love, compassion, care, to do the hard things. God will give you what you need. He is making us more like Christ. He's the one who infuses our worship. It's the Spirit of God that gives unity to a body of believers that are very diverse, come from all different backgrounds, but yet they come together in a common bond called Jesus Christ the cornerstone. There's love, there's grace, there's the fruit of the Spirit that comes from God, specifically God the Holy Spirit. What does He give? Love and joy and peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from the Spirit of God. And I want you to know that life is hard. It's, it's sometimes dangerous. Oftentimes, there's things that happen in life that are discouraging and distressing. If I want you to know, if those times in your life where you're just lacking motivation and you, you just feel like giving in or giving up, I want you to know it's the Spirit of God who brings strength, renewal, revival. I mean, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like your phone. I I have a phone I carry with me, and um, it's interesting. The more apps that are open and the more I'm using it, talking it, sending some emails, quick text here and there, the more I use my phone, the quicker it drains down, right? And eventually, like, it gets at 1%, and it stays at 1% a little longer than it stays at, like, 2% and 5%, but then you know what happens? Eventually, it just, it, like, spins around, and it's done. I can talk to it. I can push it, and nothing happens. And what what do I need to do? Does anybody know? Has that ever happened to you? What do you, what do, you do when your phone just is, like, dead? It's not functioning? You, that's right, you charge it up, right? And so I got the little cord, and I, I hook it up, and guess what? there's a charging process that takes place and it'll bring me back to 100%. I want you to know life has a way of draining you. There's some times I come home and I, I tell Karen, listen, I'm, I have nothing left. <laughs> I am totally drained. This day and all that I've had to be involved in, difficult, joyous, great opportunities, difficult ones, it's taking everything I've got. You know what I need? I need the renewal. I need the strength of his power. And that's exactly what God gives. This is the pathway to maturity, God dependence, his spirit moving in your life. If you really want spiritual maturity, friends, look what he's telling us in this prayer. If you're here, I want you to step out of the zone. Do you really want a rich, deep relationship with God? Or are you just kind of satisfied kind of where you're at? If you really want depth, the reality of knowing God in a deep, intimate way, here's our text. We find spiritual maturity comes from seeking the Father, being strengthened by the Spirit, and third, seeing the Son at home in all of your life. I tell you what, this, this next verse and what is to come is absolutely fascinating. Take a look at verse 17. We're asking God... To provide according to the rich of his glory, strength through his spirit, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts. So the word dwell means to settle down, to find one's home there. And who is Paul writing to? He's writing to, verse 1, chapter 1, the saints. He's writing to believers. Do these people know Christ? Of course they do. That's why they're referred to as the saints. They're holy ones. They're set apart to God. But what he's praying here in Ephesians 3, 17, is that they would know the fullness of Christ in every realm of life. Do you know what actually makes you a Christian? It's not that you've got the right creed. You have the right answers. Um, I think these doctrines, I think I need to believe these things. I'm going to say that. It's not that you've had some rituals done upon you, that you've got some sort of like, I was at certain churches, or I have a church appearance, or I've got a Bible, or, well, I guess I'm a Christian. My my family, my grandparents were Christians. I guess I'm a Christian. It's not like an inherited deal. What actually makes a person a Christian is that they have the Spirit of Christ who actually lives in them. It happens the moment you believe. So we see it right here. He's praying that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. You believe Christ is living, but he wants in all areas of life. Like, let me give you some great verses on this amazing spiritual reality. Like Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and is no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives where? In me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Christ living within us. Or the great mystery in Colossians chapter 1 that's revealed in verse 27, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Where is Christ? He resides, he lives in the lives of his people. And that distinguishes there's only two groups of people. Those who are in Christ and have Christ living within them, and those who do not, whether they're irreligious or religious. And so he says, This is what I'm praying, that you would know the fullness of Jesus Christ. In fact, he says, verse 17, and that you being rooted and grounded in love. Here he is going to give both an agricultural and a construction image. He's going to go from the field of botany and also buildings. And he's saying so that you'd be rooted and grounded. Rooted refers to trees. And just like a tree has a root system that provides nourishment and stability, so it is for the life of the believer. Every tree that you see, whatever you see above ground, you know that the equivalent is underneath the ground that you can't see. It's why at Fellowship Bible Church, like verses like these and quite a few others are our vision statement, growing deep, reaching out. Because if our lives are going to be nourished with the life of Christ, we need to grow deep in knowing God and his word. And if we're going to have stability in the storms of life, you know what? We've got to have a root system, and it's got to be rather substantial because, frankly, some of the storms that you and I go through are going to take everything out of us. And the strength of the tree will be demonstrated by the severity of the storm and how you respond to it. But he says, so that you'd be rooted and grounded. This is speaking of a construction image. It is the idea of the laying of a foundation. Do you know the most important part of any building is the foundation? You can get a lot of things wrong, and you can kind of fix that, but you cannot get the foundation wrong. If you are like, well, I'm going to build a house, but I'm going to really cut some corners on the foundation, uh uh-uh, you are making a fatal flaw. I don't want to bring up any bad memories for anybody, but if you ever had a home that had serious foundation problems, you don't need to raise your hand, we can see your tears, right? And... I'll give you a one-word description if you've got foundation problems on your home. Nightmare, right? Walls are shifting. Cracks are occurring. Doors that once opened no longer do so. Can't close things. Everything's a mess, and it just keeps getting worse. Friends, that is your life if you have taken uh, the idea of laying a strong foundation rather flippantly. If you've just kind of been on autopilot and just kind of cruised through life and yeah, you know a couple Bible verses here and there and you got a cute little Bible that your, matches your outfit but you have never truly really started to dive in to understand God's word having a holy reverence for him. If you've never taken this concept of Christ being the cornerstone of your life real seriously and you're just kind of cruising then don't be surprised We got some huge fissures and cracks in your life. Things are breaking down. The storm has hit. and Whoa, I don't have much of a foundation here. Things are crumbling. Friends, God wants a rich, deep relationship with each of us. That's why Paul is praying, verse 17, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. Here's a question you're like, man, I don't even know. How do I know if I'm rooted and grounded? Well, let me just ask you, ask this question. Where do you find nourishment and stability for your soul? What comes to your mind? Things are not going right. you got some difficulty. Where do you find nourishment and stability in your life? Is it, well, I, I, I quickly go and I look at my financial portfolio and I pull it up and see how much money I still have left, right? Or is it that I just open up the pantry and I start eating? Or do I, what is it that you go to? You do go, go to the, the trophies that you won in college and high school and you pull them out like, Ha, huh, that's me, you know? And that's where I find my sense of identity. Do you look at your career? Do you got something named after you? Or do you find your stability and strength in Jesus Christ and knowing him? That'll tell you where you're laying your foundation. But I know this. The trials of our life are going to test the depth that we've got. It's, it's going to happen. So, for instance, like if you're like just starting out in college... Uh, college can be an eye-opener in a lot of different ways, especially when you have a roommate. Now, if you grew up as like an only child or you always had your own room, right, and all of a sudden now you got a roommate, like, whoa, wait a second here. I thought life was all about me and you're not accommodating like I'm used to. So what happens, right? I don't, I just don't like my roommate. So I am like, I got to get a new roommate. I, I'm done. i done. I hit the eject button. I'm I. This isn't working for me. This person's a night person, I get up in the morning, they're messy, I'm not as messy, and I, I just, this isn't going to work for me. And you know, that, that happens, and they do the best they can to kind of match you up, and, but so often we're, we're ready to hit the, I'm done with this button, move on. But let's say you get yourself married, and you have a conflict with your spouse, and, and you're not seeing eye to eye on things, right? That happens in every marriage, right? Happens in my marriage, Right? Even yesterday, Courtney and I were like, we're definitely not seeing this one the same. That happens. But how do you handle it? Are you rooted and grounded in the love of Christ? Do you have a foundation? If all you know is like, I don't care who's trying to help me. Uh, This isn't isn't quite right. I'm always the victim. I'll never take responsibility. And there's a lot of reasons why I'm behaving the way I am. And you're the problem. And that's the issue. And I'm out of here. You don't really have that strong of a foundation. You're not what we're talking about here, rooted and grounded in love. And that's what Paul is praying. I I want you to know spiritual maturity. Verse 18, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, that you would understand the riches of God. And and like here he talks about breadth, length, height, and depth. These aren't four features of love. This is like to express to you that it is vast and complete. Think of it breath, like it, it covers everybody. It is long enough to go through any barrier. It's high enough to the glories of heaven and depth. No matter what you've done, what your sin, how heinous are some of the things that you thought and imagined or actually done, I want you to know God's love goes deeper. I'm like, whoa. But you will never really understand this if you don't take it into context. Look what he says, verse 18. This is really important. This is going to fly in the face of American individualistic Christianity. Verse 18, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. The only way we'll really know the depth of God's love is in the context of relationship with one another. You separate yourself, and I want you to know at some point, you don't even have New Testament Christianity because New Testament Christianity is all of us together in Christ. And he's praying that you would know the breadth and depth and height and length. In verse 19, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. You see, he wants us to know the fullness of God which is found when we really know And experience the love of Christ. He says it surpasses knowledge. Knowledge is good. Frankly, running around ignorant, I wouldn't recommend it. It's going to cause a lot of problems. You want to understand things. But if you want spiritual maturity to be a reality, you need to not only know it, but to actually experience it. Where your soul actually rests and rejoices in the reality that you're loved no matter what your background, what your level of progress, that God loves you unconditionally in Christ. It's better than knowledge, verse 19, that you might be filled up with the fullness of God to know the greatness of his character. That's what he is after here. He wants us to experience everything that God gives to his people. And you know how it's found? It's found in his love. And friends, when this is our reality, I want you to know, spiritual maturity is being expressed in our life. This is the love of commitment. It's the love where God actually, as an activist will, irresponsive of emotion, loves us unconditionally. You see, if you're like, well, how, how big is the love of Christ? I mean, like, I've certainly heard about this, sung some songs about it, but how big is it? I want you to know it's, it's big enough to handle the worst of sinners, the abuser, the addicted, the one who is immoral, the prideful, the greedy, the person that's like almost an incessant liar, they're reflexive lying. They don't even know when they're lying because that's just their MO. The person who is uh, addicted to alcohol and pornography I want you to know his love goes that deep. And you're saying, look, can you help me really understand this? How big is God's love? I think I can. Just look at the cross. Look at the cross. Consider Jesus, all that he is, all that he represents, all that he's done. Think of the cross. There's a guy by the name of Arthur Burns. So some of you are like, I have heard that name. Okay, where is it? Well, a pretty influential guy. From, he was the chairman of the Federal Reserve from 1970 to 78. He served several presidents. He was definitely one of the big movers and shakers in the district. He had a lot of power and a lot of influence. He was a Jewish guy, a Jewish economist, and he was very good at what he did, and he was well sought after. Very interesting Arthur Burns had heard of um, evangelical Christians that were meeting together uh, at the um, Capitol. And uh, he actually started attending this meeting in which they would pray for one another and they'd have fellowship as Christians. Even though he was Jewish, he actually started going to this meeting. And uh, that that actually made some waves like, whoa, Arthur Burns, he's coming to this, this Jewish guy, very important guy. Well, at one of these meetings that he was attending, there was a new guy, and he was really surprised that Arthur Burns was there. And he said, hey, could you just close us in prayer at the end? And everyone was like, okay, uh, what's this going to look like? And Arthur Burns said, I will. So I think most of my guests bowed their heads. Some of them were like, totally like, what is he going to say? How is he going to address God? And this is what he prayed. He said, Lord, I pray that the Jews would come to know Jesus Christ. Whoa, whoa! And then he kept praying, and then he said, "Lord, and I pray that the Buddhists would come to know Jesus Christ." And then he prayed, "Lord, I pray that the Muslims would come to know Jesus Christ." And then he prayed this, and Lord, I pray that Christians would come to know Jesus Christ. Friends, that's what this prayer is about. You certainly know him. We, we know him. We are saved. We are saints. But God wants us to know him in his fullness. And when we know him, we are resting and rejoicing in his love. It's like it says in 1 John four nineteen: we love because he first loved us. You see, when we are knowing God's love, there's maturity in our life and it gets expressed in all sorts of ways. How we live, how we serve, how we give generously, how we forgive people. There's just, there's just about a demeanor about how we handle ourselves and it's all rooted in the love of Christ. There's a, a booklet that I came across years ago. I, I brought it. It's, it's a small little booklet. It was called My Heart, Christ's Home. It's written by Robert Munger. And it's uh, just a very simple little book, but I've never, ever been able to forget its message. It, it, what it does is it pictures the Christian life as a house. And so you've got this guy, and uh, he has Jesus now in his home, and he tells Jesus, listen, I want you to be completely at home in my house, in my life. In fact, i would would like to even maybe show you around a few places here but because I, I want you to be completely at home in all aspects of my life. And so uh, they begin this tour. And the first place they go is the study. And the study reflects uh, where what takes place in his mind, what he's focused in. So they walk in this study here, and there's books, and there's some magazines, you know, and, and there's some artwork on the walls. And, and the man's kind of looking at his study, and so is Jesus. And the man's like, <laughs> kind of getting kind of... Not feeling comfortable about this. Like, oh, my goodness. Hmm. This is what I'm really focused on. I spend, wow, I find so much enjoyment and engagement in these things. And, yeah, this is kind of the opposite of what I think Jesus might want us to focus on here. Hmm. And Jesus is looking around and uh, the guy's looking at Jesus. He says, hey, master, (laughs) I'm looking around here, I think this needs a complete do-over. Would you help me? And Jesus says, by all means. And he fills then this man's study with his word and all sorts of books and things that are just enlightening and good and pure and noble and holy and awesome and great. And so then they move from the study and then they go to the dining room of Appetite and here he all of a sudden is aware of like, wow, there's lots of sinful appetites that I've got here, totally into materialism and prestige and secular fare. And he's like, whoa, he's looking at the things that he's feasted his heart and life on. And he's all of a sudden realizing like, hmm, I wonder what Jesus thinks about this. And then Jesus then offers him the food of doing his will. And the man eats of it, and it's never had such flavor in his life. Never such satisfaction. Well, wow, this was awesome to have a feast like this. Well, then the next room they go to is the living room of fellowship. And it was a beautiful room, and and uh, in fact, it was a special room because this man uh, used to meet Jesus there. They used to like hang out before he'd go to work in the morning. But what had happened is like. You know, this guy's important, you know, and, and the more important you are, the more busy you are, and you've got all these responsibilities that you've gotten, and actually what happened is he stopped actually spending time with Jesus. In fact, he'd look in and see Jesus waiting for him every morning, like, I got all my stuff. Well, oh, I just gotta get going. I gotta get moving on my day. And well, they used to have was like sweet fellowship, but but no more. So they're sitting in this room and and Jesus helps them to understand how much richer and fuller life is when you just experience the sweet fellowship with him, the Savior. Well, then they, uh, they make their way to the workshop. And it's really well-furnished. In fact, Jesus says, wow, this is a really well-furnished workshop. What is it that you're doing for the kingdom and for people? And the guy's looking around, and he looks at a few little toys that he's made. They're sitting on his workbench. And he's like, well, I guess this is it. And he said, I, the guy said, I, I don't even know how to do things meaningful. I don't, I don't have the skills or the strength. Would you help me? And Jesus said, by all means. And through his power, through that man's life, all of a sudden he starts engaging in very meaningful work and contributions. Well, then Jesus asked the question the guy doesn't want to be asked. Hey! do you have an entertainment room, a rec room? And like, oh, he knew like there's some associations and things that he's, he's done that really doesn't want Jesus to have anything to do with this. But Jesus is asking. So they go and um, they walk in there and, and Jesus says, you know, hey, you're going out tonight with your friends. I want to come too. And the guy's like, I don't think that's a really good idea, Lord Jesus. You're really not going to like some of the things that we do. You're just not going to like it. And uh, the guy says, I'll tell you what, tomorrow we'll we'll go to the church and we'll go to a Bible class. I think you'll like that better. But the man goes out that night. He does whatever he's doing, right? But he is absolutely miserable, right? You know what that's like? Because Jesus isn't really a part of this. And when he comes home late at night, he and Jesus have a talk, and he's sitting there and he says, You know, I I hate living like this. I tell you what, how about from now on? How about we do everything together? Jesus, I think that's a good idea. And Jesus fills his life with meaningful relationships and, and joy and fun and enthusiasm and growth and vibrancy in life. And then there's this closet, it's locked. In fact, Jesus brings it to the man's attention because there's a huge stench in the house. And he says, I think it's coming from that closet. And the guy gets angry and he's resentful and he doesn't, like, no, I, we're not doing that. It's locked. I'm not, <laughs> that's the last place. I want you. I don't want you, I don't want you in that closet. Jesus, uh, Jesus said, I'm, we need to deal with this or else I'm going to the porch. And so he uh He hands him the key and he says, listen, I don't even have the strength to do this. And So Jesus takes that key and he opens up that closet. There's dead stuff in there. It's putrefying. It reeks. And Jesus takes on all that dead stuff and he actually paints the closet, makes it new. And uh, the man just can't express just what a relief this kind of victory is. And then at the end of this little booklet, um, the man then gives the title deed of his life, his house, to Jesus. He signs it all over to him. And the book ends this way. Things are different since Jesus Christ has settled down and has made his home in my heart. You know, this week, I'd like you to take some time to do an inventory on the house of your life. In fact, you'll find in that study guide I have put those rooms. Why don't you ask Jesus. Are you really at home here? I've been meeting with a group of men uh, in our church. We're going through some discipleship material I'm writing, and I've challenged them to write out their their personal life mission statement. I've heard some good ones. One of the guys uh, came up with this one. Listen to this. To demonstrate Christ's love to others by letting his abundant love flow and overflow through me. Hmm, That's right out of this text. Friends, know this, spiritual maturity becomes our reality when, as Christ and his love are reigning in our lives. Let's pray. Lord.